It's a pleasure to be back here. A deep pleasure to see many of you again and to see some of you for the first time. <clears throat> Question and answers with the uh, tradition in the Buddhist um, way. Um, what Thai, Thich Nhat Hanh always taught us was to encourage people to ask a question that I don't like the word answers <laughs> because there are no answers. There is practice and realization and breakthrough and insight. But within that framework, Thich Nhat Hanh always encouraged us to have people ask a question that if they got a response could help them change their life shift their consciousness, change their habit energy, and settle into kindness and rest and peacefulness. So here we are. And I think what we are, we're going to collect a list of questions, because sometimes there's overlap and you can see connections. And then we'll go through them with the time limits we have. And please uh, forgive us for not being perfect in response, uh, because for me, Q&A is always live. And afterwards, I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> I forgot something. I didn't add something, or I said too much, or I didn't say enough. So it's also a practice for us to be here to be with you. I just want to express gratitude and then we'll collect questions, but Sosan is the first and your temple to bring us to Minneapolis, St. Paul. This is our third time here. And um, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about where lotus is in a sea of fire and certain places are the tip of the candle flame. And you all have been such a tip of the candle flame. And so you've been in our hearts and in our practice because uh, we feel like we adopted you in some funny way. <laughs> and uh, so we're so grateful for the invitation. Larry and I have been mendicant uh, wandering monks. We haven't had a brick temple. And so we're really grateful for the chance to be here and, and do our best. So. Questions from the heart. That was the other thing Ty always said. It's not about a, an idea or a concept because there's no way we can, and the Buddha or Ty would want us to try to handle that. It's all about our practice. So please, we have a re beautiful recorder here that will capture them. <laughs> Thank you for being here online. Anybody in the room or Hansu? I'll get us started. Um, my question, you might want to wait to write because I'll say it long and then you can write it abbreviated. <laughs> Since your theme of your visit is be not afraid. And I've been thinking about how much fear there is in the world, not just in myself, but in others. And um, it seems like for dealing with fear that's in myself, I have some practices to use, but I'm just wondering if you can shed some light on how we might practice with other people's fear mm -hmm. that affects us. Thank you.
Well, we'll need a day for that one. <laughs> um, I'm wondering how to. Uh, I find myself rushing a lot in my daily life, completing the tasks that are before me, and slipping in and out of being mindfully aware of those tasks, and then racing through them to get to some imagined future place of relaxation or peace. So I suppose my question is how to appreciate, uh, like actively, to appreciate being alive in all of those moments. Thank you for your question. Anybody relate to that one? No. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Other question or from the Zoom room? Oh, there's one in the back. Good morning. Oh, I see you. Good. Good. My question is how, in my practice, I'm feeling like I'm kind of in a rut. I'm not getting any where I'm going with it. And how do you get out of this rut? Great. Anybody relate to that question ever? Okay, thank you. Um, since uh, Ty's uh, transition in the past year, can you speak to how the uh, greater Plum Village community is expressing his continuation? Thank you for your question. Also, the question. <laughs> Oh, and there's a there's an online question. Um, if I can get the chat open, um, someone has a question about how to support people who are going through terminal illnesses. Okay. Hold on. Thank you for the questions. What was the same question? How to support people with terminal illness. Um, and we have a hand raised from Bushin. Go ahead. Uh oh, muted. Oh, you're muted. Good morning, Larry Good morning, and Peggy. Larry. Good morning. Um, thank you so much for all of your work. Um, I have in particular quoted Amer from America's Racial Karma to many groups. Um, I, I think this is, uh, can be a very frightening time for many in our society. Um, and I think it feels particularly frightening at times for a person of color. So this is related to the question of fear. Please share with us what things give you hope. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else have a burning question? We have enough for a week. <laughs> okay. 
Oh, there's one more question here. Uh, let's see. Okay, uh, this is someone who heard an interview uh, talking about um, how capitalism was created by slavery, the brutal use of humans to build wealth, and that all bodies have become part of the capitalism machine. She talks about resting and stopping as a form of resistance, and she wondered if you could speak to that. That one's for you. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Thank you for your question. I think there was one more, or did I make that up? Okay. Well, I'll start with that one. Um, every form of social creation always has problems. So don't live in the illusion, this is what I'm learning, don't live in the illusion that there's some perfect society. There's a society that's in motion. This society is a living organism. It is not simply institutions. And two stories you can track in the news. In Japan, there are quite a few young people who live in their apartment who do not come out. They order food online, they work online. And I sat through an interview with one of these young people and he said something like, I don't wanna be in a society that doesn't want me or that only wants me to produce a product. Also happening in the world right now, in China, there are young people <laughs> who are laying down on the street instead of going to work. And then they get up, they go to work for a week or two, make enough money to survive for another two weeks and then rest. So there is a recognition that, a growing recognition, I think, in the world of uh, humans that our economic institutions are not healthy for us. And the way we have constructed them, the way we manage them, the way we finance them creates incredible suffering. And more and more individuals, I think part of the other thing I want to point out is people who, uh, you know, we, the language of people who left their jobs during the pandemic and that's connected. I've talked with people in high tech from San Francisco and other parts of the world who this is just burning me out. I have no energy for my family. I have no time to take care of my well-being and uh, more and more people are recognizing that fact now what we do about it is the conversation and the creativity we need to step into but certainly we know collectively there's a price a deep price to our bodies and our minds of our economic patterns <laughs> I want to speak to hope. Um, and to me, it's connected to the, the practice rut and to faith. And uh, it was a teaching from Thai once that 
it lives with me, you know, how some phrases just seem to live with you. And it was that in Buddhism, we don't believe in faith, we believe in our practice. Uh, in Buddhism, we don't have a sense of hope so much as we have faith in our practice. And, but that we needed to have faith and hope in our bones, in our body. And so for hope, um, it would be the practice of recovering where in your bones that hope lives. I'm going to give you two examples from my life and find your own because we really need this. We need this so desperately right now because the world is on fire. And the, as a little girl, fourth grade was the diary of Anne Frank. That book woke up my practice of peace and my hope for the world. And that lives in me, Anne Frank. Um, a recent example from my life that's really helped me uh, that I told yesterday, so apologies for folks that saw me yesterday, but I had a, Larry and I have been together 28 years, mm -hmm. uh, but prior I was married and widowed. And after my husband's death, one day I came home for my, to my little arts and craft house with the front porch and there was a stack of, of toys and games like Candyland and <laughs> Snuffleupolis and all these things and no note. And this was a while ago, so it was in the age of answering machines. Remember those? Some of us do. And on my answering machine was a message from a, a woman. She said, you don't know me. My, my family read in the news that your husband was killed skiing. And they felt so bad and they said, you, you must... She must be so sad. And the mother said, yes, I'm sure she's really sad. And the kids, there's three kids. They said, well, we need to do something for her. We need to do something. So she said, okay. So they went into their rooms and they brought out their favorite toys, stuffed animals and games. And the mother said, are you sure you want to give these? These are your favorites. Is oh, yes. And we need to do it right now. So the kids and the mother got in the car and left them on my porch and left that message for me. And that story lives in me. Can you feel it? Yeah. It lives in my bones. So look for that story. And maybe you'll start with, with my story. But then find your own story where you can feel the hope in the goodness of people, in the goodness of life, in the goodness of humanity. And then we practice with that. We practice with that energy. We practice with sometimes a memory capsule like this of that front porch. And I use that as fuel. I use that as inspiration. I call on it when I have a moment of lo losing hope, losing faith, reading an article. And Thich Nhat Hanh invited us for breakfast one morning. The nuns came and got us and we got in his room and he said, I, I lost hope in America. I read an article before in, in the, yesterday about uh, atrocities that American soldiers had done in Afghanistan. And I lost hope in America. And I walked all night. He did walking meditation all night long. And then I had to see you too. And in this time with him, he, he leaned on Larry. <laughs> And even after he said that, he had to get up and go back into walking meditation twice. Mm -hmm. 
as you could just see him shift, his energy shift as he lost hope. He said, I never wanted to come back to America, but I had to see you. And it wasn't Larry and Peggy. It was the symbol of, of Larry and Peggy that gave him hope. And when he would lose hope more than once, he invited us for breakfast and he'd do the same thing and he'd just go walk, come back, walk. And I leaned to Larry once and said, wow, that would have taken me months. <laughs> but I watched him and that gives me faith in the practice that I could see that energy of <clears throat> desperation, fear, hopelessness move through him. It would move through him. And so getting to witness that, I can do that too. I can practice in such a way that I can renew myself and restore my dignity, my humanity, my freedom. When several things give give me hope to use the, that language. I have had the good fortune of living and working around the world in many cultures and places in rural villages where we had to walk for a mile to get water in the morning. And uh, for example, in Africa, India, and other parts of the planet. But every place I went, I found humanity. Every place I went, I found kindness. I found people yearning to be connected and yearning to be cared for. And I was with the Adivasi people in India. We were beginning a project and the indigenous people of India, very dark people. And when I walked into the village, they were like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> they had a little grass hut for me to live in, <laughs> which is great. And I, I think what I'm trying to say is nourish yourself with the right thing. Don't bring anything into your mind. Don't let anything into your heart that's not nourishing. You know, the Buddhist tradition has four nutriments that Thich Nhat Hanh talked about a lot. Our edible food, what we eat, know how that feels in our bodies, it flows through. Our sensory impressions, the art, the music we hear, our vow, our volition, what we're committed to in life and our and our consciousness of our I guess that was our emptiness that the seeds of our ancestors are flowing through us at every moment and if there wasn't hope in humanity none of us would be here now we would have never manifested <laughs> and uh and there are stories about this from different cultures around the world. One that came up to me yesterday is in the Jewish tradition, there's a description of the righteous, the righteous people, the righteous ones who are mostly invisible, unheard, and unseen, but they are the foundation of a good society. And we have that here. You have it here. But we've been brainwashed to think it's not. I was adopted at eight months old. 
after being in the hospital for eight months, I was very glad <laughs> to be released from all the tests and all that stuff. But I was adopted by a wonderful family uh, who took care of me and then went on to adopt, adopt three more children. So I know what it's like to be in the energy of goodness, of caring. And my parents are very disciplined. <laughs> that doesn't mean there was no discipline, <laughs> for sure. And, uh, you know, at four o'clock in the morning on Sunday, I was at prayer meeting, chanting, singing songs from slavery when I was seven years old. So I find hope in you. This is, this is how we must, my, I worked my life to change my perceptions of you and of me so I can see hope in you. I can see it in your face. I can see it in your walk. But I could also see something else. I could see the fear. I could see the anxiety. But all that's connected. It's not a problem not to have hope. As long as you remember hope is just an idea. But I'm talking about the energetics, which is what is so wonderful about the Zen tradition. The Zen tradition understands our healing and transformation is not simply words. It is the energy that moves through us and uh, continues. So when I read or I'm always looking every day to be nourished by my experience of life. And that fills me with hope. Okay, well, I'm going to riff on the vow a little. Um, I'm reminded of a quote, again, another thing that woke me up. It was from Mizumi Roshi, and he was asked by an interviewer, do Buddhists believe in life after death? And he said, no, we believe in the vow. <laughs> the vow lives. And this is also connected to the rut and hope and faith is the power of vow, uh, the power of the heart vow. Um, there's so, and the volition, it's a nourishment. There's so much energy there. And I go back in my life to the fourth grade. My vow started then to be a peacemaker. And that vow helps me through. It gives me energy. And then my vow in Buddhism from Thich Nhat Hanh is my name is true original vow. And um, so that was also picked up in our tradition, that power of the bodhisattva vow. And I've got bad news for you. We're all bodhisattvas. <laughs> the good news is there's unlimited job security. <laughs> the good news is that we're springing up from the ground we are. as we speak more and more. And to, to see that. And so this, again, the, the, the rut, when I fall into any kind of a rut, I go back to that vow. I go back to the fourth grader that kept a scrap scrapbook on Vietnam um, that noticed that civilians weren't counted in the dead. I noticed that in the fourth grade. And what did you notice? Was it, the, I think it was a second grade when I noticed somebody killing um, bugs and that it didn't feel good. I noticed that pretty early on. You might've noticed that too. So. Look for those glimmers of that vow that is going to be distinct to you. 
uh, one time in China with Thich Nhat Hanh, we went to this um, nunnery where they had this huge hall with hand-carved, painted statues of bodhisattvas. There was hundreds of them, hundreds of them. And it was people gardening, digging, playing with kids, walking, nursing, doctoring. And so the, the sisters took us through and said, find yourself. Um, and each row, I'd, I'd see myself. But it was that journey to see, who am I? Um, the Bodhisattva who everybody's glad to see from the Lotus Sutra. I love that one. Not me, but I love it. <laughs> oh, never disparaging never one. Disparaging. Oh, I love that. That's not me. But, um, but find your Bodhisattva. Uh, the bodhisattva who flies by the seat of her pants, that's more me. <laughs> but find that and the jewel that lives in that. And there's energy and movement and hope and goodness. For me, this is connected to the question about everydayness, how the, our patterning, our habit energy of busyness and activity. What I, what I, been practicing really since the pandemic in particular is uh, cultivating my relationship with the natural world. So what that means for me uh, is uh, I, I didn't decide to make a plan to do this. It just evolved over the last several years. Uh, but I've learned to practice with the dark with the night. What a space. Oh my, every day it just comes a practice opportunity. <laughs> and, and then the light in the morning. Oh my. But not only that, the natural world is not just dark and light and everything in between. It is beauty. Did you see the sunset the other day? Two last two days. So what we, we see these things, but the practice for me is to learn how to take this in yourself. Yeah to bring it into your body so that the beauty of the sunset is not simply out there, but it is here in you, in your bones. You can feel that. I practice with the air. Oh, breathing, hey. <laughs> this is the core of our whole practice. And I've learned to, to breathe differently at different times. Um, Breathing when I do the dishes, breathing when I'm raking the leaves, just noticing that I'm alive. And that keeps me from getting overwhelmed with my task. The other thing that helps me with uh, not being overwhelmed with my task is I always ask myself, uh, who's going to do this when you're dead? <laughs> <laughs> That takes a lot of pressure off. <laughs> it does. Uh, because task will always be there, but you will not in the same way you are now. So learn to take care of yourself as a precious being. Not simply, this is especially for many of us who are task-oriented. We have to reorient ourselves toward maintenance. <laughs> self-care no because many of us grew up in a culture in which suffering was a reward yeah mm -hmm. you know the, the longer you work the more exhausted you were the better person mm -hmm. 
That is sad. <laughs> we can see the results of this. Right? Every day we can see it in ourselves. We can see it in our society. A story from Vietnam. I was with Sister Chen Kong. You may know her. Her compadre of Thich Nhat Hanh. And we were in Vietnam visiting the schools and orphanages we support. And, uh, and we got to visit uh, a farm near an orphanage and a school we supported. And we got to meet with a young person there, a young man, maybe early 20s. And sister was asking him about his life and what was happening now. And he says, well, I used to be a buffalo boy. I'd get up every morning, go take care of the buffaloes. I'd feed the animals. And then I would go back to the house and rest, make tea, visit my grandmother or other people in my village who needed help, who were sick. He says, last year I started a job in a factory. Not so good. <laughs> I have no time. I have no energy to care for anything else but that job. And then he last said, I'm not sure this was an improvement. This is connected to the first question we heard. So we are learning to create a lifestyle that is not industrial. No, we become products ourselves product makers. And I, I've consulted with Fortune 500 companies earlier in my life, and, and I, could, I could see what the damage was. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter if it was the CEO or the person uh, on the parking lot. I could see the damage of the constant, constant, unceasing demand to produce mm -hmm. in order to have value. And uh, so I take my mornings, I wake up early, not by choice, I just do. I go outside, sit in the dark, I wait for the birds to arrive. I get up earlier than most birds. <laughs> and I wait for them to arrive, and then I listen. One of Avalokitesvara's core practices, compassion, listening to the sounds of the world. So every morning I try to listen to the sounds of the world and I discover things when I listen. Where we live in Carreteral, Mexico, I discovered the first thing I hear is machines. And then eventually the birds wake up and they drown out the machines. How wonderful. But learn to listen to the world we're in. The earth is talking to us all the time. The rivers are talking. <clears throat> the mountains are talking. and But we've not been trained to listen to the natural world. We've only been trained to listen to human stories. But every creature, every bush, every tree has a story. Our indigenous ancestors knew this. Wherever they are in the world. When I went to Africa and to work in village projects in Kenya, <laughs> I spent time with shamans also, men, which mean an herbalist. So I went to this famous herbalist in Kenya and he did his herb work at midnight. So we were out crawling around <laughs> on the ground looking for the right herbs that only bloom at midnight. 
This is one of the things that also gives me hope. There is things that only come to be out of our suffering. Out of the darkness we experience. We don't have to dwell there. We don't have to be victim there. We simply be the precious beings that we are. (laughs) (laughs) I brought three poems, two of Larry's and one of mine. And this is in response to the question about our community of Thich Nhat Hanh. We were with, we've been with Thich Nhat Hanh over 30 years. And when we first were with him, it was a very small group of monastics. There was 10 or 12. And it was a very small group. And um, now there's monasteries, 12, 14 monasteries around the world and a lot of growth. But from the first time of meeting Thai, he was really clear that his Dharma heir was the Sangha. Very clear. It came out, and people even left our community that wanted a Dharma heir transmission. And we we lost people probably in the first decade because people, I don't Mm. think, believed him. (laughs) You're not going to have a Dharma heir. No. The Dharma heir is the Sangha. And so this was what I wrote when he died. It It was hard for me. Um, I go between grief and gratitude, grief and gratitude, grief and gratitude. Um, I lost my mom and our dog and Ty in the same year. And COVID, where we couldn't really get together. We had Zoom memorials that Larry and I led, Zoom memorials for my mom. It's just been a hard time with death and dying in this COVID time. We haven't, you know, it's not even safe to hug yet. Um, So we've all been in this soup and talk about fear that goes in the culture. One of the ways we can work with fear is hugging with choice, you know, skillful hugging of just being held. But this has become stardust. A great peacemaker has become stardust. Did you see my teacher become sparkling radiant light? Did you catch the golden light as it tapped on your roof? vibrated the windows, shook the leaves off the tree, dropped rain and snow and sunshine everywhere. Did it tickle your neighbor, your cat, your dog, your beloveds? This golden light caressed your shoulders and bathed your face. Did you feel this? Say yes. Ty told us decades ago that his Dharma heir was us, the Sangha, a beloved community, all of us, He offered all of us the feet of the Buddha. And he once said, if we didn't claim this gift, well, that was just too bad. But now he has given us even more. We are the great continuation, the mind of love. Where do peacemakers go when they pass over? Dr. King, Mahatma Gandhi, Desmond Tutu, my beloved teacher, where did you go? There is no coming and no going for peacemakers. Their voice remains in the green forests and in the city streets. Their smile settles into the marrow of our bones. Their courage invites us all to stand tall, to face our fear. Their footsteps echo in the halls of time. Their perfume of goodness 
cuts through hatred and aversion. Their beauty, their strength, their hearts beat through our hearts. Their love never dies. How could it? My teacher's hand is in mind. We slow our steps to put gentle prints on the earth, each step reflecting my love for you. Ty's smile in my smile, our smile together. Let's see. Yeah, that's probably enough. Um, but I hope you felt that. Any of you that have read a book of Ty's, any of you have ever seen a YouTube, you are Ty's continuation. That was his heartfelt wish, and that is my experience that my teacher is everywhere. Thank you, Peggy. Um, I don't remember what's his name. Yeah, three minutes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Oh, that's okay. Um, I remember his name. Enough. Give me a clue. From Give me a clue. Encinitas. More clues. Monastery <laughs> in our neighborhood. Yogananda. Yogananda. That's what's coming to my mind. He had a great story about the power of internalizing meditation. So that while you are doing the dishes, you can behold the cosmos. And our, I want to talk about the fear, the fear response. It's, there is no such thing as fear. It's a not self, but there is neurobiologically a response we have in our bodies that respond to threat, to danger, which is really about our safety. And that neurobiological gift that we have, we have not learned how to respond too well. So we have whole societies constructed on fear. Everywhere in the world, look back through history, moats and wars and weapons, and we're at this, and I think the human being is still kind of growing up. You know, we're, we're, we're like children in, in relation to what our capacities are. And we must do the work, which I understand you're doing, to change our framework and the messages we receive from one another and from our media and from our systems so we don't fall prey to that. You know, I, I, it was, the media is so successful in convincing people that black men are dangerous. I realized several years ago, I was scared of myself. <laughs> and um, that's a sad thing. It's a tragic thing. But our fear response gets manipulated by our stories. I'm coming to the mind part of this now. So we all have stories about each other, none of which are usually verified, <laughs> but human beings are story makers. And so part of the work we're doing and you're doing is un deconstructing our stories that take hope away from us, that take our connections for beloved community to remember Martin Luther King 
um, who I encountered in high school, nothing special. We were just coming out of the men's room. <laughs> I had no I, I knew he was coming to give a talk at our high school, but I, had, I, I came in, went to the men's room. He was coming out. He said, how are you, young man? I could, I was speechless, <laughs> but I never forgot that moment because that's always been my question. And that's part of why I got trained in trauma. We spent so much time focused on who we are. We really do not understand how we are. I mentioned to a group yesterday that the riots that erupted here after the murder of George Floyd that's a 400-year pattern, completely predictable, completely horrifying in, in that sense of the word. And so part of our work in, in hope is not believing everything we hear, everything we're told by our media systems, which are quite toxic. No, there are people online who are after your mind, after your heart. They are vampires. You think the zombie stuff is just art? <laughs> you think that's just a Hollywood makeup? Look around. <laughs> and art reflects life just like life reflects art. So take charge of who enters you who enters your mind and who enters your heart. I was telling some people this morning that we've been gracious enough to stay with here. <laughs> uh, there I have some people in California who are upset with me because I wouldn't be their friend. And I wouldn't be their friend because they were toxic. <laughs> now you all know, look at your cell phone. You have somebody you can call if you want to feel bad. <laughs> right? I don't have anybody like that on my phone. I don't intend to. If they want to feel bad, fine. But I'm not swimming in that soup because it destroys my humanity and more important, it destroys my energy of transformation that I could bring to myself and to my society. So guard, this is part of the Buddhist guard practice, your guard your sense doors, <laughs> but especially difficult at the time of the internet, because not a lot of people understand that's a, that's a door. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's 1021. It means we are out of time. We didn't get to all the questions. Sorry about that. I hope you. One thing to look for from Plum Village. Oh, you're going to, Okay. Is, is working on a new online course based on Zen and the art of saving the planet. So be on the lookout for that. We're filming for that now. Some of that's happening here. Tuesday, Sister Peace will be arriving Monday, and Larry, we're doing some We're doing filming. some video stuff for, for that. But this will be an online course of six sessions. Very well done. They picked up a grant. They, they were picked so up happy. a grant and that asked them to do this and funded the process. And so, but this is also what you need to be doing. Get your voice out. Tell your story. I heard her voice this morning. Oh, my God, she should be on radio. <laughs> we have these clowns on radio. God, help me. Anyway. 
really need a bell. <laughs> oh, yeah. I grew up in the Pentecostal church. Sometimes it comes out. <laughs> Thank you. Sure.